Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I should stop. <laughs> okay, I'll be introduce, my, introduce myself, but everybody obviously knows who I am. My name is Toki. I'm one of the gospel community leaders here, and I have the opportunity and privilege to bring God's word to us. So we are continuing our study of Galatians, and last week, Pastor Femi showed us from Galatians chapter 5, from verse 1 to 12, that it's possible, even if you are a Christian, to slip back into slavery, even though God has set you free. This happens when we try to create a salvation for ourselves apart from Christ. He told us that when we do that, we devalue Christ and we slip into slavery to ourselves or slavery to fear. The solution is to stand firm by loving God and loving others and continue to believe in the scandalous grace of God. And like he said, the summary in verse 6 of the whole passage is that what matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but faith walking through love. I'm going to continue um, in chapter 5 from verse 13 to 24. But before we do, let us, let us pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for the reminder in the song that we are not what we've done or who we know, but we are loved unconditionally. And we are known by the King of Kings. Thank you for reminding us that you are all we need, that you are enough for us. As we look into your world, we ask, oh God, that you open our hearts to receive from you. We ask, oh God, that you will change our lives by this word and you renew our faith. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Okay, so I was thinking the other day about social media. And it was just interesting how different age demographics gravitate towards specific social media platforms. So, for example, if you're in your late late teens, 19 probably, to early 30s, probably have a VPN on your phone because you're most likely often on Twitter. If you're slightly above that in your mid-30s, you may not like it, but most of your mates are on Facebook. But if... (laughs) But if... (laughs) But if you are 60s and above, your preferred was, um, social media platform, WhatsApp. <laughs> well, they call it WhatsApp. <laughs> and if you have an older parent, you know that they send you all kinds of messages. All kinds. And so people start telling their parents, you cannot continue doing this. You cannot be spreading fake news. But they didn't stop. What they start doing, they will sprinkle, copy, or forward it as received. But some of those messages are not actually that bad. Some are actually quite good. So there's this one I received a while back, a while back and, um, and it's always from a popular person, whether or not the person said it. So here's what he said. When I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down, happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment. And I told them that they didn't understand life. <laughs> and it looks like one of those messages, but it's actually saying something really profound, that happiness is the key to life. What we really want to be is to be happy. 
And when I say happiness, I'm not talking about laughter. I'm talking about the sense of happiness when someone asks you, are you happy in your marriage? You're not asking if you're married to a comedian. Okay, even if you're a serial that you're asking, who is actually married to a comedian, what they're asking you is that, what they're asking you is, do you feel a sense of well-being in your marriage? Do you feel fulfilled in your marriage? Do you feel like I would rather not be married to anybody else? And so to differentiate this type of happiness from the regular happiness that we know, it's often called flourishing. What does it have to do with freedom? Freedom is the ability to pursue what we want. And we've seen that what we really want is to flourish. And the reason why we pursue the things that we do, the reason why we pursue the five things we often pursue, wealth, pleasure, power, reputation, fame, the reason why we do that is because we want to live a flourishing life. And we'll see from Galatians chapter 5, from verse 13 to 24, that true flourishing comes from a life changed by Christ, expressed in loving service, and sustained by faith in the Holy Spirit. True flourishing comes from a life changed by Christ, expressed in loving service, and sustained by faith in God's Spirit. And the title of the sermon is A Flourishing Life. And we'll look at it under three headings. Fake flourishing, true flourishing, and sustaining flourishing. So we'll take the first one, fake flourishing. Yes, my water. Pastor <laughs> 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 Femi told us last week that there are two types of freedom. There's the negative freedom, which is the absence of change, and there's also positive freedom, which is the ability to do whatever you want. I was saying that what we really want to do is to flourish. What we want is to be happy. And that's what Paul said in verse 1. We learned that, we learned that last week. It is for freedom, positive freedom, that Christ has set us free. Negative freedom. And Paul repeats that sense in verse 13. He says that God has called you to freedom. What this means is that God, what Paul is saying is that God is for you. God is concerned about your flourishing. God wants you to be happy. And we can talk about how it's often misunderstood, but at the core of it is that God is for you. And it's often hard to believe this. And you're not alone in, 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 in finding it hard to believe. The very first temptation was a serpent telling Eve, you will not certainly die, Genesis 3 verse 4. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The background is that God had created a world that was very good. He created a man and a woman, put them in the garden and told them they can eat from everything, do whatever it is they like, apart from a particular tree. And what the serpent was telling Eve was that there's a happiness there's a flourishing that exists that God is trying to prevent you from accessing. That God has set his laws so that he wants to stop you from accessing flourishing. And so God cannot possibly be for you. Martin Luther, the, the German reformer, he put, it, he put it better. He said, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. And there are two ways we express this unbelief. The first one is that we say, I'm going to take matters into my own hands by supplementing the gospel, by freezing it up a bit, by topping it up religious activity. And in the Galatian church, it was circumcision. They said, yes, you can be saved by faith, but to continue to truly be a Christian, you need to add the Jewish law. You need to be circumcised. This is called legalism. The other way is that we say, I'm going to take matters into my own hands by doing whatever I like. I'm going to take matters into my own hands by rejecting God's law entirely. But the Bible says you don't have to take matters into your own hands because God has called you to freedom. 
God shares your desire for flourishing. He wants you to flourish even more than you do. But the issue is how you are going about the flourishing. The issue is not freedom, but the way we are pursuing this freedom. And in verse 16, Paul tells us there are two ways, two opposite ways we can pursue flourishing. The first one is the flesh. The second one is the spirit. And obviously you know that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. But Paul is not talking about your physical body when he's talking about flesh. He's talking about, the Bible tells us that our physical bodies are actually good. God created them. God gave us these desires. But he's talk, when he's talking about flesh, he means a tendency very deep in you to find the focus of your life in, yourself, in yourself. He's talking about a type of life that is by default, factory settings, by default, self-centered. Verse 17 tells us that the flesh has desires. And the word there, desires, it actually means, the literal translation from the Greek is over-desires. It means that sometimes we want something, sometimes it's very good, but we want it so much that we feel that our life no, has no meaning if we don't get it. And that desire becomes twisted because we want it too much. Here's the issue. The thing that we love the most, the way we're made, the thing that we love the most is what drives our lives. The thing that we love the most is what orients our lives towards a particular vision of flourishing. And so we can love many things. And it's fine to love many things, but what we should do is to rank our loves, to order our loves, and assign the most love to the most important thing. And when you have an over-desire, it means that something shall be, that is supposed to be lower is now up and is now the thing that is driving your life. And we have all types of over-desires. But at the root of them is that we evaluate everything in the light of this. Does it benefit me? Does it increase my significance or power? Does it impress people around me? And we'll use people and abuse things just to achieve, it, achieve what we want. And any community, a marriage, a family, a church, that lives this way, where everybody's trying to get their own way, it will lead to conflict and the breakdown of that community. Verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. And if we are honest to ourselves, we see that as, as Christians, we are not free from our selfish desires. We are not free from our selfish agenda. We are not free from trying to always get our own way. And this is what Paul says in verse 17, that there's a struggle within you. There's a conflict between you, if you're a Christian, between your spirit, between your flesh, which is self-centered, and God's spirit, which is essentially other-centered. Verse 17 says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you're not to do whatever you want. And the sad part is that we can even use God's grace and God's mercy as a basis to advance our selfish ends. This is what Paul means in verse 13 as using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And the most famous example is a pastor who was allegedly having an affair. And I have to say allegedly, so nobody sues me. He was allegedly having an affair. And the lady said she allegedly told him, why are you doing this? I said, you're a Christian, you preach against these things, but you're doing them in private. And he allegedly told her, <laughs> and I quote, I will teach you a level of grace that you don't understand. And we may shake our heads at it, but we do the exact same thing. When we use God's love and mercy as the basis for doing what we like, when we go and commit sin because we feel that God is going to forgive our sins, when we do good things with selfish motives, we are saying that because God is a forgiving God, 
I will use it to express my selfish desires. Here's how the devil convinces us, or we convince ourselves. Now, what we are doing, the sin we are about to commit, will either avoid a greater sin, or is actually going to bring about some good. So, for example, you say, I'm going to go to bed angry with my spouse, so that they will learn to not take me for granted. <laughs> Bringing good. I'm going to look at porn, because it's better than committing fornication. I'm, no, I'm not going to be generous to this guy, so I can teach him the value of hard work. I would say I'm going to commit suicide so I can free my loved ones of the burden of looking after my issues. But here's the problem. The flesh overpromises and underdelivers. The pleasure that we get is fleeting, and the deep satisfaction, the deep flourishing that we are looking for never comes. And even worse, it's going to damage us in the long run. And so in verse 19 to 21, Paul says, I want to explain to you. He doesn't want people to look at, look at what he's saying and then start making excuses. So he says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to explain explicitly what a, a life lived by the flesh looks like. And so we have the works of the flesh. The first three are sexual sins. The next two are religious sins. The next eight are what they call social sins. And last two are sins of drinking. And I feel like that's shorthand for all types of substance abuse, from food and coffee at the bottom to the worst substance abuse you can think about. And when we see this list, our, our eyes immediately goes to orgies. I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm thankful I don't go for orgies. But I don't even know what an orgy is, so I'm fine. <laughs> or we look at something that is there that we don't do, and then we use it to justify ourselves. But we need to look closely at these things. Many times the works of the flesh are alive and well in our lives and around us, but we, could not, we do not notice because they are always presenting themselves to us in a way that we do not notice them. We don't understand. I don't know. So anyways, there's this company, a telecoms company. It started as Econet. I, know, I understand there are many issues behind it that cost it, but the next thing, they say they are now V-Mobile. <laughs> All right, so trying to get used to V-Mobile. They say they are now Celtel. <laughs> they are now Zane. Now they are going by Airtel. Nobody knows what next they will go by. And that's how the works of the flesh are always evolving, always presenting themselves in different forms. And we're going to look at three of them. So for example, what the Bible calls envy. Today we call it God when. <laughs> we say this person does not have two heads. Envy is when you're mourning that other people are rejoicing. You're saying that you deserve at least what this person has, but what you're really saying, even though you may not voice it out, that you deserve better than this person because you believe you're better than them. What the Bible calls jealousy, a better translation there is zeal. And nowadays we say, I'm ambitious. I'm a bulldog. It's talking about a single-minded pursuit of your goals that you don't care whose ox is God. You don't care who you trample on, the, trample on. you don't care who you throw under the bus to achieve your goal. And so you see Christians upstanding in church, but at work they are abusive to their, to their subordinates. They use all, kind of all kinds of bad words on them because they want to achieve their goals. Or selfish ambition is a bit related. The word there means to run for office. So if you know politicians, once it's election season, they start frying akara. You see them frying akara. You see them roasting corn. They don't care about these people. But selfish ambition is showing solidarity with someone because you want to exploit them. 
It's showing that you're empathetic. You keep empathetic. You care about this person, but what you really want is to convert them to your agenda. And if you've been around church culture for long enough, you know that this is a serious issue in church. And it's a present temptation, if you're a GC leader, if you're a leader, to, to not see people as potential members, potential givers, but see them in their, as by themselves as people made in the image of God that are deserving of love, regardless of if they come to our GC or not, regardless of if they, come to our, they, they um, sign up to our agenda. And the Bible says that if your life is characterized by these things, you will not inherit God's kingdom. Paul is not saying that you can lose your salvation. But he's saying, if your life is characterized by the works of the flesh, it doesn't matter if you're incredibly gifted by God. It doesn't matter if you understand all mysteries or you have faith that can move mountains. It doesn't matter if you're incredibly generous. If you can give all you have to the poor, by your lifestyle, you show that you know nothing of the grace of God, of the saving grace of God, and so you will go to hell. Here's why. The first thing, the, first, the reason why you will not go to heaven is that if you go to heaven, you will spoil it. <laughs> you will go and spoil heaven. There's this running joke that if you carry Nigerians, take them to a Western country and put them there. In, 20, in 10 years, they would have turned that place to Nigeria. And so God has to protect heaven from people like you. And that's why you don't go to heaven. But even something that's even sadder is that sin is turning us into the kind of person that cannot even enjoy heaven even if God were to allow you to enter into heaven. The word virtue, it comes from the Latin word to be a man or to be a human. And what this implies is that if our lives are not full of virtue, if our lives are full of the anti-virtues, we are not human. We are becoming less than human. <sighs> a lot of us have seen the, the movie, Lord of the Rings, or you've read the book. And so there's this horrible creature called Gollum. Can we see Gollum? We know him. My precious. But what we find out later is that he was not always like this. He was actually once normal. He doesn't look too normal, but he was actually <laughs> once normal. But what happened? Over desire. He found an evil ring. He over desired it. He called it my precious. And the more he over desired the ring, the more his desire for that ring increased, the more it turned him more and more into something else. And he became, he became the twisted creature that we know as Gollum. Why? Because our desires are elastic. And so with every gratification of sinful desire, our desire for that sin increases and is changing us more and more into something else. We are becoming less than human. And if you have struggled with sexual purity, you know this very well. That you don't start from day one with sex. You start with kissing. You get it through. The next day, you kiss, but you don't get that same through. So you want to take it up, second base. And you keep going more and more until you become the kind of person that says, I cannot be in a relationship without sex. Or you don't say it, but you prove it by your life by always pressuring the person you're in a relationship with for sex. Or you're always quarreling with people. And the more you quarrel, the more quarrelsome you become. And the more quarrelsome you become, the less you see things from people's point of view. And you're winning arguments, but you're losing your friends. And you're, every time you're saying it's because they, are not, they, are, they don't understand me. It's because they're not gospel-centered. But can you not see that sin is changing you? It's twisting you into something else. Speaking of Gollum, someone said, there was nothing worth doing. Can we see the quote? Only nasty, furtive eating and resentful remembering. He was altogether wretched. He hated the dark and he hated light more. He hated everything and the ring most of all. And someone asked, if he hated it, why didn't he get rid of it or go away and leave it? And the answer was that he hated it and loved it as he hated and loved himself. 
He could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. That's a way that seems right unto a man. But the ends thereof are the ways of death. The ultimate aim of the flesh is to bring us back under bondage. But like Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Let's look at our second point, true flourishing. So the first part is called life in the flesh. This other part is called life in the spirit. And to understand how it makes you flourish, we need to go back to the beginning. For something to be truly flourishing, we need to ask, what was it made for? Because a flourishing life is not a life that fulfills any random purpose, but a life where you be and you are and be what you were made to be. Emmanuel gave us an illustration a while back that you can take a microphone and use it like a hammer. And it may work, depending on circumstances, the materials you're using. But you continue using that microphone as a hammer, but you will never experience the full expression of what that microphone was made for until you use it in the right way. What were we made for? The Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God. And God is love. This means that God at his nature, at his core, is a, rela is a relational God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, eternally loving each other, eternally self-giving, eternally not hoarding, eternally expressing their life outwards. And the Bible also tells us in Colossians 1.16, and not only were we made by Christ, we were made for him. All things have been created through him and for him. So flourishing is our chief goal. And God is our chief end. It means that flourishing and the Trinitarian communal God of the Bible are intricately linked. C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, says the happiness that God designs for us is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight. The wealth, the power, the fame, the approval, and the pleasure that we are looking for are good things. But, they are, they, but because they are good things, they, they come from the source of everything good. Like the rays of the sun that hit us from the sun that is God, who is the source of all goodness. And our self-centered quest to get these things apart from God are actually putting the flourishing we desperately desire further and further out of our reach. C.S. Lewis says again, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by, at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like a writer said, false flourishing is not second best to true flourishing. False flourishing is at war with true flourishing. What we need is for someone to bring us back from the path we are on, from the path that is leading us to death and destruction and set us on the right path that leads to true flourishing, unity with God. What we need in the language of the Bible is for someone to liberate us from our bondage to sin and to reconcile us to God. And the Bible says that Jesus came down. God came down in the form of Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that we, de that we deserved. And God raised him from the dead. And if you believe in him as, in, if you believe in him as Savior, you become a co-participant in his death and resurrection. What this means is that those benefits are applied to you. That's why Paul can say in verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified, past tense, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Christ, the decisive action to break the back of your flesh, to deliver you from bondage has already been taken. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15 to 17, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And I'm just going to go to the KJV. Therefore, verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things say that your acceptance comes from achievement. And so you need to continue to achieve more so you can be accepted. You're only as good as your last achievement. And so you're only as good as your, so you need to make more money. You need to have more likes. You need to have more influence. To be more accepted, you need to achieve more. But Newton said that you're already accepted and loved unconditionally by God. That God has set his spirit into your heart. And so you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. The old thing said that your continued flourishing is dependent on good luck. And so you keep hoping that your spouse doesn't leave you. That your business does not fail. That your health does not fail. That the government does not ban Twitter where you have so many followers. Your flourishing is dependent on your continued good luck. But Newton said that you have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. That nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That God is working all things. Even if bad things happen to you, God is working all things together for your good. All things say that there are preconditions to flourishing. So Aristotle, one of the most influential people who ever lived, he said this. Now, if you're not born to the right family, if you don't know the right people, if you don't have physical beauty, in this word, it says it mars your blessed name, your blessedness. Flourishing is far from you. But the Bible says, the gospel tells us that not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. This is the good news that Jesus brought to the poor, that no matter who you are, no matter your circumstances, flourishing is within your reach as a gift, if only you believe in him, if only you believe that Christ died for you, and if you believe, if when you believe, God puts his love into your heart and you respond to God in worship, it changes something in you. That love reorders your love, and it becomes the driver of your heart, and you begin to respond back to God, in, you begin to respond to God in love. When you hear your grace has found me just as I am, empty-handed but a life in your hand, it changes something you, it does something to you, you respond in a certain way. But it doesn't end there. That love that God gives us overflows into loving others with the same self-giving love that God gave us when Jesus died for us. That's why in verse 14, Paul just mentions that you should love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say anything else. He doesn't say anything about loving God because he knows that it's impossible to love God without also loving your neighbor. Here's what Eugene Peterson, the author of the message, here's what he said about love. Here's how he defines love. Love is acting in correspondence with or in response to God in relation to persons. Each person is God's person, standing before God as his child and before me as a brother or sister. A lot of issues, relational problems, are because we've forgotten this. The reason why you're touching your girlfriend inappropriately is because you're forgotten that she's God's child and your sister. The reason why you're in church and you know that two people are not on good terms, but you don't, it doesn't bother you, is because you're forgotten that all of you are brothers and sisters. You won't do that with your actual siblings. It's the same reasons, the same reason why we hate people. So something happened to me a while back. I came to church early, and at the back there, some people were talking. Uncle Bola was one of them. Debo was one of them. I can't remember the other people. So I was just passing by, and I heard them mention the name of one Twitter influencer. So I, you are not talking to me. I just came back. Did you mention this guy? I said, yes. I said, I hate him. 
So Uncle B was like, ah, why now? I washed the guy. I abused him. I finished him. I dragged him. When I finished talking, Uncle Bola said, that guy is Debo's brother. <laughs> I wanted to die. <laughs> so as if the ground would open. I was, I was like, why didn't you tell me? You should have done me. Shh. You should have held my mouth. And I Trying to make excuses, trying to recover. <laughs> so, nothing about that guy changed. But I began, I began to see him differently because I saw him in relation to someone that I loved and respected. When we, begin, when we love, we begin to see people in relation to God who saved us, God who loved us with an everlasting love, and it changes us. The Bible says that this love that comes from God, it drives, no, the Bible doesn't say that, but this love drives us. <laughs> Because God is communal. He drives us into a relationship of communal love, a relationship of mutual love. And the Bible calls this divine love. How it's expressed to others, the Bible calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And we can look at them, and they're actually personal traits, but we can also see them as a description of the kind of love that comes from God when it's expressed to others. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 from verse 4. It says that love is patient. Patience. Love is kind, kindness. It doesn't envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, goodness. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, peace. It is not easily angered, self-control. It keeps no record of wrongs, peace again. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, joy. It always protects, always loves, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, faithfulness. And Paul says in verse 13, take this love further and serve one another with this love that I've given you. What does serving in love look like? The best explanation I can give is there's this Instagram comedian. His name is Charles Okocha, also known as Igwe Tupac. So one of his kids, he was, he was running for president in his kids, and so he said something, his manifesto was something, nine words. Truth be told, I'll make everything smooth for you And this is what serving really is. Except I'll add that you're being proactive about it. That's the idea of serving. But it means that every time you're thinking, when you wake up, how can I make things smooth for you <laughs> Can you imagine what your marriage will look like if both your husband and wife are always thinking, how can I serve each other? How can I make things smooth for you <laughs> how will, What will our church look like if everybody is trying to make things smooth for you And you're free to do whatever you like. When you're loving, you're free to express this love in so many ways. But it starts from knowing people. Because you cannot love people that you don't know. And so there are two things we can do. We can do both of them today, actually. But there's one everybody can do today. First thing is that after church, walk to someone that you don't know and talk to them. Maybe a new person, maybe somebody I've never talked to before. Go and find out about them. Begin to take the first steps to enter into community with them so that you can know how you can serve them. The second thing we can do is to open our homes and understand that Lagos is stressful. And so, if your home is like a sanctuary to you, it's like your safe place. But that's not what the Bible tells us. In, in Luke chapter 18, verse 29, Jesus promises many houses to people who follow him. He was not saying that every Christian will become a landlord. He was thinking about your house. 
your house is in many houses that Jesus promised to people that follow him. And so God envisions a community that is so neat together in love that my house may as well be your house. Just that I pay the rent for it. And you say, ah, in a city like Lagos, Lagos, and I agree, it's so stressful to serve. I don't have the time to serve people. Some people say, I like to keep my relationship, my, my circle small. I've exceeded my relation quota, so there's no space for anybody else. Some people say, I've been hurt by people, so I'm not interested. And there's one that everybody can relate to, regardless of where you live, regardless of who you are, is that people are annoying. People are annoying. There's this guy, we grew up together, we reconnected on Facebook. So how far we started chatting on WhatsApp? He asks me for money every time. When I mean every time, once he just buzzes me, I know that it's money. So one day he sent me a message. Can you explain a passage of the Bible for me? I was like, ah, this is different. The passage of the Bible that I wanted me to explain for him was don't be tired of doing good. Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> and then I couldn't be angry. I was like, I was, my mouth was just open. I was like, wow. And so I was, I was chatting with Femi. I came where Femi is one of our deacons here about it. And I said, This guy asks me for money all the time. And he said, Well, you ask God for mercy all the time. I said, you don't understand. This is what he did. And I was like, okay, that's different. I was like, ah, thank God. And I said, no, 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 hold on. Your responsibility to that guy has not reduced. It actually has increased. And so you have more responsibility to him than money. You have to actually try to go out of your way to help him. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. And he was absolutely right. Our motivation for serving comes from what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus was the ultimate servant. He left the tr his glory that he had with the Trinity and came down. Philippians 2 verse 7 says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of his servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And why does he do this? Because he loves us. Seven people in love is not easy. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your money. It's going to be very uncomfortable. But we can never forget that it cost Jesus Christ his life. And you say, it doesn't sound like flourishing. This sounds like, opposite, like the opposite. I wanted abundant life, and this is looking like something that is even more stressed. But you need to hear what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. It flourishes. And that's, Jesus' story did not end in verse, verse, um, verse 8 of Philippians. The Bible says that after that, after he saved us, after he died, that God exalted him to the highest place. God has exalt, highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. At the mention of Jesus, every knee will bow of things above the earth and below the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Seven is a paradox. It's a divine paradox. The more we serve, the more our desires are expanded, the more we get more capacity to enter into and enjoy the flourishing that God made us for, the flourishing that God gave us when we believe in Christ. True flourishing, true freedom, is not from a life of self-centeredness, but from a life changed by Christ that expresses itself in loving service to God and to others. True flourishing is not a life of self-centeredness, but a life changed by Christ 
that is expressed in loving service to God and to others. I may be saying, I hear you, but when I look at my life as a Christian, it looks like what I ordered versus what I received. <laughs> I am a Christian, but I keep using my freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I want to change. How can I change? Brings us to our third point. How can we live a flourishing life, sustaining flourishing? A flourishing life is started and sustained by the Spirit of God. I have a four-year-old daughter, and lately we've been into puzzles. And the highest, the highest number of pieces we've done is actually 48-piece 48, 48, um, jigsaw puzzles. So imagine with me that one day I come back with a 1,000-piece puzzle. And if you have done 1,000-piece puzzles, you know that they're not child's play. And I pour everything on the table. She'll be unable to make any sense of it because it's beyond her ability. And so if I say, oh, I forgot, I now bring back the cover. So on the box of puzzles, they show the true picture of what you're supposed to make it into. So she sees the picture on the cover. She knows that that's what these things are supposed to make. She may be able, even be able to fit one or two together, but she still, her situation has not changed significantly. She's still unable to do it because it's beyond, far beyond her ability. What she needs is a helper. She needs someone to come alongside her, to tell her, this is the color. Look at the colors on the picture. You need to match it to these colors here. We need to put these shapes together. Sometimes you may even have to help her put the pieces together while you're tearing her on. In the same way, the law is like that carton, where the full picture is. We see it is the character of God is perfect, but we are unable to do it because we do not have the power to fulfill the law. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. He doesn't just come alongside us. He comes inside us. And he says, I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my right hand of righteousness. And he says, I will expose you, but I'm exposing you because I want to save you. And he says, God, I've broken the pieces of my life. They are no longer complete. So many things have happened, but he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you until I finish the work that I've started in your life, until you become like Jesus. And our response is to yield to him. Our response is to yield to him. The Bible tells us two ways we can do this. It says we should be led by the Spirit and we should walk by the Spirit or live by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit simply means to follow him. But where is the Spirit going? In Romans chapter 8 from verse 13 to 14, 13b to 14, we see that being led by the Spirit means to follow God into conflict with our flesh. The B part says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Why? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You see it. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are those that are going to battle with their flesh. To be led by the Spirit is to hate your sin. That's the difference between Christians that commit some of the works of the flesh and non-Christians. The Christian hates his sin. The Christian does not wallow in his sin. The Christian cries to God to deliver him from his sin. To be led by the Spirit is to repent when you fall into sin. To be led by the Spirit is not to live from a mindset of how far, how much can I get away with? It's not to say how far is too far. It's not to say what's the limit of physical contact with my girlfriend so I can stay on that line and not shift from it. It's not saying what's the limit of modesty for a Christian so I can stay on that line and not shift from it. It's not saying what's the limit, how long can I go without reading my Bible? To be led by the Spirit is not saying, ah, I can't go for GC. Ah. To be led by the Spirit is not saying, ah. There is prayer meeting in GC, so it's a GC holiday for me. He's not saying, I can't come to church because of the pandemic, but you go to other places where half of the precautions that we are taking here are not being taken there. 
be led by the Spirit. It means that you do everything that you can to cultivate your love for Christ. That you do everything that you can to remove the space where sin can operate. So for, most, for some of us, it means that some of us may have to uninstall Instagram on our phone. Some of us may have to decide that we cannot stay in the same room with the person we are dating. Some of us may decide that we have to join WhatsApp groups where people hold themselves accountable for reading their Bible. Some of us may have to, may have to decide that we, we have to give a fixed percentage of our income so that we'll combat the greed in our hearts. I'm not talking about self-effort. But I'm saying do everything you can to cultivate your love for Jesus. Second thing is to, 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 to walk by the Spirit or to live by the Spirit. And Paul tells us in Galatians 2 verse 20, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. <laughs> to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit is to believe the gospel. And the idea of walking means that you do it over and over again, over and over again. To believe that God right now is for you. That God right now is in your life, fulfilling his promises in your life. And this is hard because the world pushes back on us. The world tells us that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ. That God's laws are oppressive. There's a happiness that exists outside of God. That we have to take matters into our own hands. But what by the Spirit tells us that we should push back on the lies of the devil with the promises of God. That Christ is enough. That Jesus is better. <laughs> to walk by the Spirit is to remember that the reason God tells us to say no to some things is so we can say yes to higher things. And to live by the Spirit is when you fall to repent, to not believe the lie of the devil that you're far from grace, that you're cut off from grace, but to repent and believe that God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all righteousness. <laughs> the flesh tells us that sin is inevitable. You will forever stay in that besetting sin. But the Spirit tells us that God has delivered you, that there is no, therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And little by little, we begin to change. We realize that we used to be anxious, but now we are less anxious. God is changing us the more we believe in him. We used to be very, we used to be hoarders, but now we are generous. We used to be very impatient, but we remember the grace of God and we become patient to others. And the more we do this, the more we are becoming more human. The more we are advancing towards the image of Christ. The more we become transformed by Christ, the more we need to believe the gospel. Because it is faith in Christ that enables us, enables us to serve others in love. It's faith in Christ that makes us realize that we don't have to hold things because we only have Jesus. And Jesus is enough. True flourishing is not from a self-centered life, but from a life changed by Christ, expressed in loving service and sustained by faith in the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos